0: Hello, ladies. Hello, hello. Hello. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. I'm Deb Haygood, part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and um, it is really a great privilege to be here with all of you studying God's Word together. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for being a part of our study of Psalms. Each week, we are looking at a different psalm They are all uh, different. Uh, We've looked at a psalm of trust and confidence in the Lord. We've looked at a psalm of confession, um, confessing, praying to the Lord. We've looked at a psalm of lament, David, in one of his hardest times, calling out to the Lord. We've looked at a psalm of wisdom. We've seen the wonder of God's Word. And we've looked last week at a psalm of spiritual discipline. All different, because the Psalms are the language of the believer's heart. It's soul language. It's uh, calling out to God in all those different situations that we're in, uh, sorrow and joy, in hard times and in good times, in praise and thanksgiving and trust and hope and delight, in those times when we're sad and despairing and confused, and even in times of understanding, Matthew Henry says, by the psalmist's expression, the Spirit helps us to pray. And that's the goal of our study of psalms, that these psalms would help us to pray. And so today, as we study Psalm 49, it's a psalm of wisdom and meditation. Uh, We never see the psalmist talk to God, but we're going to see how this psalm directs our thoughts and turns our hearts to talk with God. So let's turn to Psalm 49. We're going to start um, with the first four verses. That's the introduction. Now, we've said that the psalms are songs. They are songs. They were sung in temple worship, and they were sung over the ages in individual and corporate worship. Even Jesus sang the psalms. Um, And this psalm, we know, was meant to be sung, and we see that um, in the superscription. It says to the choir master. So we know that this song was to be sung, and it sounds to me like it was probably starting out pretty loud because the psalmist is bold and insistent, and so it's big and loud. I kind of hear a trumpet, fanfare, or maybe even a drum roll. So as we look at verse 1, could we have a drum roll, please? Here... Thank you, Richard. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. So we see the psalmist is very insistent. By the way, thank you, Richard, for that great drum roll. That's how we should start out. We see the insistence. He's saying two times to listen. He says, hear this and give ear. It's like he's saying, listen up, pay attention, listen, listen. Kind of like the teacher rapping on the desk, trying to get the attention of the class. She's saying, listen, I have something important to say. Maybe you've kind of said this, you're trying to get the attention of your children. You've got something important to tell them or your husband. And you're like, listen, listen. The psalmist has something important to say. And whose attention does he want? Everyone's, all peoples in the world, everyone in the world, from the highest to the lowest, from the richest to the poorest, and everyone in between, every clan, every country, every neighborhood, every nation, No one is to be excluded. No one is too rich. No one is too unknown to be excluded from this important message. So this message is also for you and me. It applies to everyone. The audience is universal. And why should we listen? Because the psalmist says, I shall speak wisdom. Wisdom, compelling wisdom. So his message is truth. His message is important, it's universal, and it's true. Compelling wisdom. You know, a a simple definition of wisdom is skillful living. Wisdom is to perceive God's will for human life. Let me say that again. Wisdom is to perceive God's will for human life. It's to apply knowledge to life. A person with wisdom has expertise in godly living. And I say godly living because that's synonymous with skillful living. And we know that. If you look on your verse sheet, Proverbs 1.7 tells us this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fear of the Lord... That reverential awe of God. Fear is really a right relationship with the Lord. And that is the beginning of wisdom. It begins with God. And then we see he goes on to say in verse 3, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. Understanding is defined as discerning, insight. It's the ability to see between issues. Now, understanding is very important to me. I like understanding. I want to understand situations. I want to know why they're happening and what's happening. And so if you know me very well at all, you know that I ask lots of questions. I want all the details. I want to understand. I also want to understand people. I want to know why they say what they do, why they're thinking what they think and acting like that. So I like personality tests. Anyone else in here like personality? Yeah, okay, thank you. You either like them or you really, really don't. Um, I like them because it gives us insight into what a person is thinking, why they act the way they do. And I also want to be understood. It's important to me. Nothing frustrates me more, nothing hurts me more than to be misunderstood. And maybe some of you are like that as well. And it seems here To understand God is the first step in understanding. It says meditation. Now, let me say here that um, this meditation is very different from Eastern meditation that we here talked about today. Eastern meditation is where you sit and you empty your mind. But the psalmist here is talking about meditation where you fill your mind with God's Word. And it says here to meditate is to reflect upon to contemplate, to carefully consider, to ponder, to think deeply. And all of these descriptions imply time. Meditation takes time. It doesn't come quickly. In fact, Proverbs 2 tells us this. Uh, King Solomon, wise King Solomon, is the author of the book of Proverbs. And so Solomon says, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. You have to search for it. Now, I have a story about searching for um, hidden treasures— diamonds, actually. Um, There was a family reunion some years ago, and it was in Arkansas, and everybody came, all my family and all my uh, extended family, my uncles and aunts and my cousins, and one day we decided we were going to go to the Crater of Diamonds State Park in Murfreesboro, Arkansas. Has anyone been there before? Okay, I see some hands, yeah? Okay, well, then you know what this was like. We all got in the car, we drove there, we got out, they gave us a little tray with a kind of a screen on, like a sifter. And then they took us out to a big field of volcanic dirt. And you put dirt in your pan, and you sifted it, and you waited for the diamonds to come to the surface. Well, if I ever thought I was a patient person, I realized that day I was not, because after about five minutes, I was done. And so because it was a state park, I spent the afternoon hiking, but I had a cousin He never left. I mean, he stayed there the whole entire day until it was starting to get dark. And we're saying, hey, we got to go. It's getting dark. Um, And then I found out later that two days later, he went back and he searched for it some more. Yeah, that is kind of how it is with wisdom. You have to search for it. It takes time. Don't give up. Keep looking for wisdom. Psalm 111.10 tells us this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. It takes practice. It takes time. Don't give up. We see in verse 4, he goes on to tell us that he's going to incline his ear to a proverb. A proverb is a short, wise saying. He's going to contemplate that. And it says, I'll solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Now the riddle here could refer to the perplexities of life and he's thinking them over as he plays his lyre. He's taking time. The psalmist has taken time with the Lord to gain some understanding of life. So this psalm is from the Lord God has created us, and so all of us are created with a certain common humanness, and he's created the universe. And as Tim Keller says, he's created it with a certain grain to it. Now we understand grain, the grain and wood, that's kind of that pattern, that design in the wood, and we know that when we sand it, we have to sand with the grain. If you sand against it, it ruins it. Some of you may understand better the grain of fabric, if you're a seamstress or you sew. Um, When you sew, you want to lay your pattern out with the grain of the fabric um, when you cut it out. Otherwise, if you cut it out against the grain, it's going to be a stretched out, misshapen garment. It will be ruined. So going against the grain ruins it. And that is the same with God's universe, against God's law and plan. That's the grain of the universe. And when we go against it, it ruins us and everyone around us. Now, we have lived long enough that we understand some of those things that go against the grain of how God made things, such as unkindness, selfishness, greed, injustice, dishonesty. Those go against the grain, and it ruins you and those around you. So to gain wisdom and understanding is meant to change not just behavior, but also attitudes, as we understand God's universe. So if you look around you and you find a perplexing problem, a difficult attitude to understand, maybe it's a decision you have to make, or you're unsure of what choice is the wise choice, go to God. Go to God. Meditate on it with him. The Holy Spirit will help you. Now, remember this. As Charles Spurgeon says, we must make use of our own mental powers as well. You know, we're not just empty puppets and the Holy Spirit comes in and speaks. We have to think. We have to use our mind as well in this. So go to God, meditate on His words, talk to Him about it, take time with Him, listen to Him, and you will gain understanding. So, what is this mystery, this perplexing problem that the psalmist has gained wisdom about? Um, first of all, let's talk about the psalmist. It says here in the superscription, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now, the sons of Korah were a group of Levitical musicians that were involved with worship in the temple. And so one of these sons of Korah may have written this psalm. Now, some of you have asked me, you've said, hey, who are these sons of Korah? I thought Korah was swallowed up back in Numbers last semester when we studied, and that's true. So I want to talk about that for just a minute. Back in Numbers 16, we met Korah and some of his friends, and they were grumbling and rebelling against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And so in essence, they were grumbling against God. So God, to show that Moses and Aaron were his chosen leaders, he caused the earth to swallow up Korah and his rebellious friends, and it says their tents and their households. But either some or all of Korah's sons were spared, because later in Numbers, we read this. And so on your verse sheet, Numbers 26 says, And the earth opened its mouth, and swallowed them up together with Korah when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, and they became a warning. But the sons of Korah did not die. So here we are several hundred years later, and the sons of Korah are temple musicians. They are from the tribe of Levi. The Levites were the ones that assisted with temple worship, and they also knew God's law, God's word, God's commandments, his scriptures. And so part of the responsibility was to teach the Israelites God's word. So it makes perfect sense to me that one of the sons of Korah has meditated on God's word and uh, spent time with the Lord, spoken with the Lord to gain understanding on this perplexing problem that we read in verse five. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. So here's the question, the problem, why do the wicked prosper? The psalmist has looked around, and he sees the godly, poor, and needy being tormented by the unrighteous, wealthy, and powerful. Or maybe you might want to put in that blank, uh, troubled by the unrighteous, or maybe even haunted, haunted by the unrighteous. You know, this is not a new problem, not an old problem. It's been throughout the centuries. Even some of you um, may have asked this very question. You say, um, hey, I love you, Lord, He doesn't care a thing about you, and he's getting rich illegally or unethically, immorally. He's getting rich. What about that? You know, this has been a common problem throughout times. In fact, there's even some other psalms that deal with this problem. And so on your verse sheet, Psalm 37 says, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. And then in Psalm 73, we read this. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. A common problem throughout time, but the psalmist has gained understanding and he wants to give us hope in it. You know, we think of this psalm sometimes as being um, dark or or heavy, but in truth, the psalmist wants to give us understanding and hope. And so he begins in verse 5 by applying the wisdom to himself, and that's a very good place to start. When you have gained some wisdom, begin by applying it to yourself. And so he says, I don't need to worry about it. I don't need to fear them or concern myself with them because their glory is fleeting, It's fleeting. It's not going to last long. They're boasting in their wealth. They're trusting in their wealth. They are enjoying a false sense of security. Their uh, wealth is really very limited. And his test for that, he says, no man can save another one with their wealth. No matter how much you love someone, you do not have enough money to spare them from death. In fact, With no amount of riches can you even save yourself. Now, sometimes we may think that we can buy ourselves a little more time, but the truth is God has an appointed time for us, and so um, money cannot change that. So how foolish to boast in your wealth. How foolish to trust in your wealth. Two things I want to say right here. First of all, wealth is really relative. That doesn't mean your relatives have wealth. (laughs) Joke. It's relative. What I mean by that is there's no certain amount of money that makes us wealthy. In fact, most of us probably think I'm not wealthy, but she is wealthy. So there's no amount of money that makes us wealthy. Secondly, riches or wealth is not evil in itself. To have wealth is not a sin. It is what we do with our money. It's how we view our wealth that makes it wrong. And we see that one place is uh, Paul telling Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's the love of money, Paul tells us. It's setting your heart upon it as the best thing. It's wanting it above all else, wanting it even more than a relationship with the Lord. You know, it's the nature of mankind to trust in his material things, those things that we can touch and hold on to. And I think that is why we so often want wealth, because we put our trust in it. It takes wisdom and insight to truly grasp. That attitude is foolish. No amount of money can really protect us from the hard things in life, financial ruin when your company goes bankrupt or you lose your job, or um, when a relationship goes sideways, or maybe it's um, a diagnosis that changes the outcome of your health forever, profound grief or sorrow, betrayals in relationships, wealth cannot change any of that. So we need to remind ourselves of the very real limitations of money. So let's go on and look what else uh, the uh, psalmist has to tell us, what other wisdom he has to impart. Verse 10, for he sees that even the wise die, the fool fool and the stupid alike must perish. Okay, so the psalmist's mother never told him, do not call someone stupid. Um, So the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they call lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain, he is like the beasts that perish. So the psalmist goes on to say that in death we are all equal. You may have heard that phrase. It says, death is the great equalizer. The psalmist would agree with that. That is true. No one will take anything with them, not even one thin dime. We take nothing with us. So how foolish to spend all your time working for more and more riches. Um, how sad to be greedy to hoard your wealth when you could bless others with some of it. How ridiculous to boast in it. The poor man and the rich man both leave this world empty-handed, taking nothing with them. Paul tells Timothy this in 1 Timothy 6, 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. So this is a little heavy, um, so I kind of have a joke here. There was a... very wealthy man and he died and his relatives were outside uh, the door of his room and they were greedily and eagerly waiting for the lawyer. And when the lawyer comes out, one relative says, how much did he leave? And the lawyer pauses, you know what I'm going to say, he left everything. That's the joke. Okay, it's not very funny. (laughs) It actually was under the thing of joke. Okay, it's not very funny, (laughs) but it's really very true. We leave everything. So the psalmist says here, they have great houses, and they have much land, um, and they think their reputation will live on. They even name um, these things after themselves. It is an illusion of immortality. The glory, the reputation is short-lived. None of us will be remembered for very long. Maybe if we're remembered 100 years, that might be long. And on the timeline of eternity, 100 years is just a dot. You know, a few people in history books may be remembered longer, but the truth is, none of us will be remembered very long. Now, there's a song out right now that has really kind of caught my attention. I've thought about it a lot. And then when I started studying Psalm 49, I thought the uh, songwriter must have also been studying 49. The lyrics are um, interesting. You've probably heard it. It's on Christian radio. It's by Casting Crowns, and it's called Only Jesus. And um, I'm not going to sing it this morning, but I'm going to read a few of the lyrics he says, make it count, leave a mark, build a name for yourself, make a name the world remembers. But Jesus is the only name to remember. And I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus. I've only got one life to live. I'll let every second point to him. Only Jesus. The next verse says, "'All the kingdoms built, all the trophies won, "'will crumble into dust when it's said and done, "'cause all that really mattered, "'did I live the truth to the ones I love? "'Was my life the proof that there is only one, "'only one whose name will be remembered, "'one name that will last forever, only Jesus.'" And I don't wanna leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me, only Jesus. I've got one life to live. I'll let every second point to him, only Jesus. You know, only God can give you the things of value that death cannot touch, those eternal things, such as relationships, such as the blessings that you get serving others, or glorifying God, or pointing others to Jesus. Those are the eternal things. And so I want to pray, Lord, help me to see the beauty of the eternal rather than the glitter of the temporary. Let's go on. We're going to see um, now some contrasts. The psalmist have said that we... Uh, Our end, in the end, we all die and we take nothing with us. And so now we're going to look at the paths that we um, live and that the end that they take us to. One quote said, doom of the proud is sure, but the hope of the righteous is eternal. And so we're going to look at these two very different paths that make all the difference in the end. So let's look verse uh, 13. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. The path of the foolish, the self-confident, the self-sufficient, the self-righteous leads to the grave, like a flock of sheep being led by death. And here we see some very poetic imagery. Now we've said the Psalms are poems and here's some great imagery. The foolish, wealthy, they are like sheep. And um, their sheep are not known to be very smart. They pretty much just kind of uh, blindly follow along. And here we see that death, is leading them. Death is personified as the shepherd, and he's leading the foolish wealthy sheep to Sheol. That means the grave, to death. And it says that their new home, Is the grave. Their new forever home is the grave. And you see the word there after verse 13, Selah, and you see it again after verse 15, and that is a musical term. We're not sure what it means, but it might mean pause, like a musical interlude as we think about these verses. Or it might mean to get louder. Selah comes from the root word that means to lift up. And so it could mean lift up the music, lift up our voices as it gets louder. And I see that music getting louder as we come to verse 15, the climax of this psalm. But God, but God will ransom my God will redeem me from the power of the grave. The psalmist has placed his hope in God. He knows God. He walks with God. He trusts him, and he understands the righteous will be spared from everlasting darkness. He says, God will receive me. Now, this is an amazing verse. It's an amazing verse because that but God in verse 15 is a mountaintop of Old Testament hope. In the Old Testament, you sometimes see these peaks every once in a while of great hope. And this, verse 15, Psalm 49, is one of those great mountaintops of hope. And it's also an amazing verse because we're sometimes told that the Old Testament people, they didn't really have a very good understanding of the hope of life with God after death. But here we see this Old Testament writer seems to understand it very well. Now, he may not have understood the resurrection, but he is certain that he will be with God on the other side of death. He says, God will receive me. Now, when we read that word, receive me, that is the same verb that is used in Genesis um, to um, talk about Enoch being taken up with the Lord. Um we I had that on your verse sheet Genesis 5:24 it says Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. So Enoch was a righteous man walking with God one day and one day he was gone. God just took him up. He was received by God and the psalmist has this hope in God that he will be with the Lord And here's the contrast in this final analysis, the one who fears and loves God, who walks with him, trusts in him, even though poor and oppressed in this life, he is the fortunate one who lives forever in glory with the Lord. Now, we today have the great benefit of living on this side of the cross. We know and understand God's plan and God's promise from the Old Testament, which was to provide a Savior for mankind. And we know that the fulfillment of that promise is Jesus Christ, God the Son, who came to earth to reveal the Father, and also so that um, he could give his life as a ransom for us, to give his life that we might live. Jesus ransomed our souls by shedding his blood on the cross, dying, and then resurrecting to life. Romans 5.8 says it like this. Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? When we put our faith in Christ, when we trust Jesus, we too are glory bound and we will be received by God. The psalmist did not understand all of this, but he put his faith in God and believed and he understood that God would receive him and he would be with God after, just like he is, was in life, he would be after death. So let's go on. We're gonna finish up here with these last few verses. The psalmist is gonna continue to give us some practical wisdom that we can apply to our lives so that we might live skillfully. Let's look at verse 16. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. Even though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. So the psalmist tells us, do not be afraid. Do not fear the wealthy. Do not let it give you concern when the evil guy prospers, when cheaters win, You know, when we're kids, we love to say that cheaters never win, but we live a little while longer, and we see sometimes cheaters do win. The psalmist is saying, don't fret about that. Don't worry about divine justice. Do not worry about temporal prosperity. Temporal is the opposite of eternal. It's those things that we can hold on to and grasp. The temporal are the things of this world. That's where we get the word temporary He's saying, don't worry about that. He also encourages us not to envy the ungodly wealthy. Do not envy their homes or their belongings. Now, believers will be tempted to envy the prosperity of others. Maybe we will even be intimidated by it. But the psalmist says, do not be overawed. Do not be overawed by it. I kind of like that word, overawed. There will be some who follow after the wealthy, the famous, the powerful, the well-known, praising them and showing approval. But the psalmist tells us, do not do that. Do not be like that. Do not envy them for their fame and fortune is fleeting. So we're to guard ourselves from an attitude of envy or awe of the rich, and it takes wisdom and insight. It takes understanding and effort to um, not have those feelings of envy. And not that. The other thing, the trap I can fall into, to be honest, I can find that, fall into that sin of pride where I'm thinking, I'm not like that. I'm not rich. I'm not oppressing the poor. What pride that is. What pomp that is. And how easy I get caught up in my self-confidence and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. And that is foolishness. Yes, it's foolishness to envy its foolishness, to be prideful in that. And really, it's freeing not to worry about getting, gathering, and collecting things, getting more stuff, because then you have times for relationships, time to serve the Lord and others, time for those things that really, truly bring you joy. And once again, the psalmist reminds us that the unrighteous will one day go to the grave, taking nothing with them. They go into everlasting darkness, leaving behind all the wealth and glory. I don't know if you guys thought about that, not seeing light again, that everlasting darkness. I love the light. I like to open up the windows and let all the sun in. And the thought of being in deep darkness forevermore is a horrible thing. It's a sad thing. It's a scary thing. That is the end for those that are trusting in themselves. Everlasting darkness all the praise of men, that self-satisfied attitude, that feeling that I've done pretty well for myself, all that is gone with the grave. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 5.15 Wise Solomon also wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand All those things that we might work for really hard, we can't grab any of them and take them with us. Nothing in our hands. We go empty-handed. And it says here in verse 20, let's look at this one more time. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Now that verse 20 is very much like verse 12, except for that phrase, yet without understanding. Wealth does not bring understanding, and therefore, it does not bring everlasting life. Without understanding who God is and how he has created the grain of the universe and how he is the one that we must place our confidence in, without that understanding, they will perish along with everything that they've been living for. Whereas the one who fears God, who has an understanding of God, has an everlasting hope of a glorious future with the Lord beyond the grave. So what is the wisdom of the psalmist? Do not seek wealth. And even more importantly, the wisdom is seek God, gain understanding. Take your questions, your perplexing problems, your decisions and choices to the Lord. Take time in his word. Talk it over with the Lord. Listen to him and find wisdom. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Spend time with God. Seek God. You might not gain wealth, but you will gain understanding. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a mighty God, and how we want to know you more, how we want to understand you more, Father, how we want to live lives skillfully, godly, putting our, um, our whole priority on you, Father. Thank you for this, these women that have come. Thank you for your word. May it just dwell deeply in our hearts and cause us to be closer to you and to love others more as we think about this Psalm 49. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.